Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Sullivan's Travels from 1941. The studio was Paramount Pictures. The release date was December 29, 1941. The running time, 90 minutes, and it was in black and white. Leonard Maltin from his classic movie guide gives it 4 out of 4 stars. His synopsis is, tired of making fluff, director Joel McRae decides to do a serious film. To research it, he sets out with 10 cents in his pocket to experience life in the real world. Slapstick and sorrow blend seamlessly in this landmark Hollywood satire, which grows more pertinent with each passing year. A unique achievement for writer and director Preston Sturges. So Leonard Moulton summed up this film perfectly in his brief synopsis. Many pick Sullivan's Travels as Preston Sturges' finest film. But as I talked about during the Lady Eve episode, Sturgis is not limited to just a few great films. Okay, let's get into the main cast. You have Joel McRae who plays John L. Sullivan. Later in McRae's career, he'd be best known for his roles in westerns, but early on he starred in many non-westerns as one of the top leading men. His career began in the late 1920s, but it really didn't take off until the mid-1930s. His most notable films prior to Sullivan's travels include The Most Dangerous Game. This came into play since McRae ended up turning down the Jack Driscoll role in the original King Kong from 1933 because he didn't want to be typecast in jungle films. He was often paired with Marion Hopkins and Barbara Stanwyck. His breakout role was in 1940 for Foreign Correspondent, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Veronica Lake plays, well, the girl. (laughs) That's the name of her character. Lake was one of the most stunningly beautiful actresses of her era, and her career began at the age of 17 with very small roles when she was using her birth name of Constance Keene. After around a year of small roles, it was producer Arthur Hornblow Jr. who suggested Keene change her name to Veronica Lake. As he says, her blue eyes reminded him of a calm, clear blue lake. That same year, she got her big break in the film I Want Wings with her signature hairstyle that was seen with her flowing blonde hair parted on one side, almost covering one eye. To this point, many actresses weren't letting their hair down, so to speak. One interesting note about Sullivan's travels, Lake was six months pregnant when filming began. This likely is the reason that the part worked so well for her, because many scenes she was covered up in baggy clothing. And since she was traveling as a hobo, nobody could notice. Sturgis was very upset after learning that Lake was hired under false pretenses, and famous costume designer Edith Head was hired to come up with the outfitting of Lake to try to hide from her showing. Sadly, due to years of alcohol abuse, Lake would die in 1973 at the young age of 50. The writer and director, of course, Preston Sturgis. Now, I already covered his early career in the Lady Eve episode, so check that out. Sullivan's Travels came out the same year as the Lady Eve. Okay, the making of the film. So Joel McRae first met Preston Sturgis while filming the movie The Power and the Glory with Spencer Tracy, which Sturgis wrote the screenplay for. McRae complimented Sturgis on the script, and the two would bump into each other over the years on the Paramount lot. Sturgis was also a big admirer of McRae's acting talent. 
So one day, Sturgis walked up to McRae at the Paramount lot and told him that he wrote a script for him. McRae was shocked and said that nobody would write a script for him. Scripts are written for, you know, Gary Cooper. And if the studio can't get Gary Cooper, well, then they call Joel McRae. And that script was, of course, Sullivan's Travels. McRae loved working with Sturgis, and it was one of his favorite directors, and later said that Sturgis gave him the confidence he needed and made him feel bigger than Clark Gable when he worked with Sturgis. Now, it is said that Preston Sturgis got the idea for the movie from stories of actor John Garfield, who was living the hobo life, riding freight trains and hitchhiking his way cross-country for a short period in the 1930s. In his autobiography, Preston Sturgis noted that he wrote the film as a reaction to the quote-unquote preaching he found in other comedy films, which seemed to have abandoned the fun in favor of the message. A lot can be said about films now in Hollywood saying the same thing. All right, let's get into the film. So the open credits are shown like a book with a woman's hands turning the pages, listing the cast and crew. After the cast is listed, we get the following message. To the memory of those who made us laugh, the Motley Mountain Banks, the clowns, the buffoons, in all of the times and in all of the nations whose efforts have lightened our burden a little, this picture is affectionately dedicated. Sturgis originally wanted the prologue to read, this is the story of a man who wanted to wash an elephant. The elephant darn near ruined him. The film begins action-packed as we see two men in a fight on the top of a moving cargo train. One man shoots the other while being strangled, and the two plunge into the river below them. And the end. <laughs> Turns out, this is the latest film for director John L. Sullivan, which is Joel McRae. He and the producers are watching a cut of the film in the studio screening room prior to its release. John wants to convey the message with his latest film about the current events of the day, but the studio executives aren't interested. They want a sure-fire moneymaker, which means play it safe, and be entertaining. John is getting frustrated with the lack of creativity he's being given for his films. I want this picture to be a commentary on modern conditions, stark realism, the problems that confront the average man. But with a little six. A little, but I don't want to stress it. I want this picture to be a document. I want to hold a mirror up to life. I want this to be a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity. But with a little six. With a little sex in it. How about a nice musical? How can you talk about musicals at a time like this with the world committing suicide, with corpses piling up in the street, with grim death gargling at you from every corner, with people slaughtered like sheep? Maybe they'd like to forget that. Then why do they hold this one over for a fifth week at the music hall? For the ushers? They died in Pittsburgh. Like a dog. What do they know in Pittsburgh? They know what they like. If they knew what they like, they wouldn't live in Pittsburgh. That's no argument. If you panted the public, you'd still be in the horse age. You think we're not? Look at Hopalong Castle. You look at them. We'd still be making keystone chases, bathing beauties, custard pie And a fortune. Fortune. Of course, I'm just a minor employee here, Mr. LeBrand. He's starting that one again. I wanted to make you something outstanding. Something you could be proud of. Something that would realize the potentialities of film as the sociological and artistic medium that it is. With a little sex in it. Something like Something that. like Capra. I know. What's the matter with Capra? Look. You want to make a brother without that? Yes. Now, wait a minute. Then go ahead and make it. What you're getting, I can't afford to argue with you. That's a fine way to start a man out on a million-dollar production. You want it, you've got it. I can take it in the chin. I've taken it before. Not from me, you haven't. Not from you, Sully, that's true. Not with pictures like So Long, Saron. Hey, hey, in the hayloft. Ants in your plants of 1939. But they weren't about traps and lockouts, sweatshops, people eating garbage in alleys and living in piano boxes and ash cans and... And Floyd. They're about nice... Clean young people who fell in love with laughter and music and legs. Now take that scene and hey, hey, in the head. But you don't realize conditions have changed. There isn't any work. There isn't any food. These are troublous times. What do you know about trouble? 
What do I know about trouble? Yes, what do you know about trouble? What do you mean, what do I know about trouble? Just what I'm saying. You want to make a picture about garbage cans. What do you know about garbage cans? When did you eat your last meal out of one? Well, what's that got to do with it? He's asking you. You want to make an epic about misery. You want to show hungry people sleeping in doorways. The newspapers around them. You want to grind 10,000 feet of hard luck. And all I'm asking you is, what do you know about hard yes. luck? Yes. What do you mean, what do I know about hard luck? Don't you think no. I've... What? You have not. I saw newspapers till I was 20, then I worked in a shoe store and put myself through law school at night. Where were you at 20? Well, I was in college. When I was 13, I supported three sisters and two brothers and a widowed mother. Where were you at 13? I was in boarding school. I'm sorry. Well, you don't have to be ashamed of it, Sully. That's the reason your picture's been so light, so cheerful, so inspiring. They don't stick with messages. That's why I paid you 500 a week when you were 24. 750 when you were 25. 1,000 when you were 26. When I was 26, I was getting 18. 2,000 when you were 27. I was getting 25 then. I just opened my shooting gun. 3,000 after thanks for yesterday. 4,000 after answering your I plan. suppose you're trying to tell me I don't know what trouble is. Yes. In a nice way, Sully. Well, you're absolutely right. I haven't any idea what it is. People always like what they don't know anything about. Certainly had a lot of nerve wanting to make a picture about human suffering. You're a gentleman to admit it, Sully. But then you are anyway. Now, I love the last scene for different reasons. I appreciate John's appetite for wanting to be creative and to try to make a difference. On the other hand, I totally see the producer's point about creating something entertaining for audiences who simply want to get away from the misery of regular life. Now, why would an audience pay to see something on screen when they can read about it in the newspapers or are already living it? But I get the point of John. You know, he's basically lived a nice, educated life, and he's had success very early on. And that's not to say he's like a trust fund kid by any means, but he hasn't had any hardships in the slightest either. So how could he make a movie about the plight of the average person when he has basically zero experience with it? This definitely reminds me of many young college students who like to lecture folks about what should be done in the world and debating pseudo-intellectual theories in a controlled environment, while their bills are being paid by their parents. But I digress. But unlike those know-it-all trust fund kids I just mentioned who would never give up the comfortable life for their beliefs, John Sullivan decides to put his passion where his mouth is. He decides to make a film adaptation of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And to do this, he will give up all of his possessions and decide to live day by day, homeless. He believes the experience will allow him to make the best film possible. Now look, even though John's intentions are well-meaning, it's still easy to say you can be temporarily homeless when you know there's a job waiting for you whenever you're ready to go back. So, will this experience actually change John's life outlook or even create a good film from it? Who knows? John practices looking like a stereotypical hobo of the era with worn down clothes and a stick with a cloth sack wrapped around it. Of course, he's practicing his downtrodden walk with his two butlers. <laughs> During the practicing, John receives a call from his wife, whom he's separated from, and she's asking where her alimony check is. In some ways, John feels it would be best to have nothing, and that would allow him to not worry about responsibilities such as, you know, alimony. In any case, John gets a lecture from one of his butlers, who doesn't believe John is doing a wise thing simply for the sake of research. Good morning, sir. Oh, good morning, Burroughs. How do you like it? I don't like it at all, sir. Fancy dress, I take it. Well, what's the matter with it? I have never been sympathetic to the caricaturing of the poor and needy, sir. Who's caricaturing? Well, doesn't know about the expedition, sir. I'm going out on the road to find out what it's like to be poor and needy, and then I'm going to make a picture about it. If you'll it. permit me to say so, sir, the subject is not an interesting one. The poor know all about poverty, and only the morbid rich would find the topic glamorous. But I'm doing it for the poor. Don't you understand? I doubt if they would appreciate it, sir. They rather resent the invasion of their privacy, I believe quite properly, sir. Also, such excursions can be extremely dangerous, sir. I worked for a gentleman once who likewise, with two friends, accoutred themselves as you have, sir, and then went out for a lark. They have not been heard from since. That was some time ago. 1912, sir. Uh-huh. 
You see, sir, rich people and theorists, who are usually rich people, think of poverty in the negative, as the lack of riches, as disease might be called the lack of health. But it isn't, sir. Poverty is not the lack of anything, but a positive plague, virulent in itself, contagious as cholera, with filth, criminality, vice and despair, as only a few of its symptoms. It is to be stayed away from, even for purposes of study. It is to be shunned. Before John starts on his journey, the studio people come by to his apartment, and now they've changed their mind about his idea. They now think it's a great publicity stunt. And of course they do, right? And the studio promptly puts a traveling publicity bus on John's tail when he starts on his journey. Before you all get started, I just want to tell you one thing. My mind is made up. But nobody's here to argue. I know. Sully. You know that your slightest we wish... We talked it all over, and there's something to the idea at that. There's a great deal to it's it. It's a pet. They're stupendous. Cassie has it all worked out. It's as safe as a church, big as a cathedral. Bigger? It's the story of the year, Sully. It'll make the front page of every newspaper in the convent. I'm sending five of my boys... Make me a charge. An advance agent in front and a follow-up behind. A cook and a stalemate. I want lots of eight by ten. Now, let... I'm revamping that lovely land yacht that DeMille used in the Northwest Mountain. It follows you at a discreet distance. Hot coffee, sandwiches, and a little bar in the back. It's connected to the studio by short wave, and it also carries... A hot shower a, and a secretary. And a physician. Look. I'm trying to find trouble, but I won't find it with six acts of vaudeville on my tail, at least not the kind I'm looking for. Be reasonable, Sully. I'm reupholstering it from stem to stern. Wait, you see. I tell you I've made up my mind. Definitely. Definitely. In that case, there's nothing else to do. You said it. But serve you with this little summons to appear and show cause why you should not be restrained from jeopardizing your unique and extraordinary services by willfully, recklessly, will you, unnecessarily... Will you please wait a minute? We have all day, Sully. But you must realize we also have minds. Also made up. begins this remarkable expedition into the Valley of the Shadow of Adversity. The Shadow of the what? The Valley of the Shadow of Adversity is what you call a paraphrase. Alone and unattended. Great Stooges. I'll write the story that's just the same to you. Pray to passing prowlers, poverty, and policemen. How poetic. With only ten cents in his pocket. I wish I had what he's got in the bank. John Lloyd Sullivan, the Caliph of Comedy. Upon in Hollywood at four o'clock this morning. Yes, sir. Can I sell you another stack, Doctor? Get me some bicarbonate of soda and don't call me Doctor. He was talking to me, I think. No, thank you. You say you don't want no bicarbonate of soda, Doctor? Don't call me Doctor. No, I don't want any bicarbonate of soda. Well, he don't. This place is very depressing. So is the breakfast. Why doesn't he read a book if he wants to learn something? Oh, the cook? He can learn plenty. No, Sullivan. Maybe he don't know how to read. The cook? No, the... This is gonna be a great trip. Sorry, I must have the wrong number. That was the lighthouse keeper on San Clemente Island. Ask him what his daughter's doing. I said the lighthouse keeper on San Clemente Island. How about a little gin rummy? I don't drink, thank you. Never touch it. But John decides to evade the cavalcade and flags down a kid driving a little roadster, and the fun begins. How about a left, bud? If you don't mind going fast, I'm studying to be a whipping tanker. Go to it, Lieutenant.
Roger. This is where I get out. She's some tank, ain't she? In the class by herself, I never felt anything like it. Well, I guess I better be getting to school now anyway. Yeah, I guess you better head. Drive carefully. You know me. Uh, by the way, uh, how old are you? Thirteen. So long. What a future. <laughs> yes, that 13-year-old kid likely has more ex- life experience than John at this point. The raucous chase scene, having the tour bus fall to pieces and the crew thrown out, trying to keep up with the kid in the roaster is absolutely hilarious and a blast to watch. After John gets out of the roadster and walks over to the demolished bus, the traveling crew agrees to let John set out on his journey alone, as he intended. John ends up at a boarding house run by two older widowed women who agreed to take him in, as long as he works on the farm for his room and board. However, the overbearing nature of the women lead John to get stir-crazy and eventually escapes in the middle of the night after a few days after his arrival. Now, it's almost like a prison break as he ties a few bedsheets to his bed and drops himself out the upstairs window. John hitches a ride on a truck and the next morning is woken up by the driver who informs John that he's now in Hollywood. (laughs) He's back where he started. He then goes to a diner to get some coffee and a donut since that's all he can afford. A kind and beautiful woman, Veronica Lake, she's also a struggling actress, decides to take pity on John and tells the diner clerk to give him a full meal. Give him some ham and eggs. Yes, ma'am. That's very kind of you, sister, but I'm not hungry. A cup of coffee and a sinker will fix me up fine. Don't be a sucker. Give him some ham and eggs. The way I'm fixed, 35 cents isn't going to make any difference. Here. Thanks. Things a little tough, huh? Wouldn't be sitting in an owl wagon for local color. They locked me out of my room. Oh, that's too bad. Well, things are tough everywhere. War in Europe, strikes over here, there's no work, there's no food. Drink your coffee while it's hot. What'd they lock you out of your room for? Did I ask you any questions? I'm sorry. It's all right. You been in Hollywood long? Long enough. Trying to crash the movies or something? Something like that. I guess that's pretty hard to do, huh? I guess so. I never got close enough to find out. Oh, sorry. Say, who's being sorry for who? Am I buying you the eggs or are you buying me the eggs? I'd just like to repay you for them. All right. Give me a letter of introduction to Lubitsch. I might be able to do that, too. Who's Lubitsch? Drink your coffee. Can you act? What'd you say? I said, can you act? Sure, I can act. Would you like me to give you a recitation? Go ahead. Skip it. My next act will be an impersonation of a young lady going home on the thumb. In that outfit? How about your own outfit? I mean, haven't you got a car? No, have you? No, but... Then don't get ritzy. And I'll tell you some other things I haven't got. I haven't got a yacht or a pearl necklace or a fur coat or a country seat or even a winter seat. I could use a new girdle, too. I wish I could give you some of the things you need. (laughs) You wouldn't be trying to lead me astray, would you? You know, the nice thing about buying food for a man is that you don't have to laugh at his jokes. Just think, if you were some big shot like a casting director or something, I'd be staring into your bridgework saying, yes, Mr. Smearcase, no, Mr. Smearcase, not really, Mr. Smearcase. Oh, Mr. Smearcase, that's my knee. Give Mr. Smearcase another cup of coffee, make it two. Want a piece of pie? No, thanks, kid. Why, Mr. Smearcase, aren't you getting a little familiar? Look. Thanks. Look, if you wanted to stay in Hollywood a little longer... Well, I don't want to stay in Hollywood a little longer. 
I've used up all my money, all my going home. Well, I was just going to say, I have a friend that's out of town, and you might be able to stay at his place for a couple of weeks, and maybe by then things would break a little better for you. Or he might even be able to help you a little. No, thanks. There's no strings to this, kid. I know you don't know who I am, but I used to know a few people around here, and this guy's really out of town. And you know a way in through the window or something, no thanks. No, I'm pretty sure that in this case... I'm he... going home, big boy. I can get a ride out of here in a little while. I don't like to think of you asking a bunch of thugs for lifts along the highway. Then don't think about it. You mean you just get in any car that comes along? Anything but a Stanley steamer. My uncle blew up in one. That's terrible. You can't tell what kind of a heel is have to be behind the wheel. All heels are pretty much the same. Look. Yes, Mr. Smirkays? Uh, this friend of mine, the guy I was telling you about that's out of town, I'm sure he wouldn't mind if I borrowed his car. What is it, a street car? It's a car. And you just wait here. And now you're just going to get yourself in trouble. I'm not going to get myself in trouble. I'm just going to repay you for the ham and eggs. Well, that isn't necessary, big boy. Someday when your ship comes in, you can buy somebody that's hungry some ham and eggs. We'll be all square. That's fine. Just wait here, and I'll be back before you can say, uh, what was that big director's name? Lubitsch. Lubitsch. Again, what's interesting about this film is that Veronica Lake's character is never given a name, just the girl. So for narrating purposes, I'm going to call her Veronica. In any case, John decides to change his plans and takes his own car from his mansion driveway to repay Veronica with a ride. But Veronica believes he stole it. You better drop me at the next corner and take this bus back where you stole it from. Don't talk nonsense. I left a note saying I was taking the car. Or did I? Be nice if you could remember. <laughs> Would be funny, though, if they arrested me for taking it. Panic. Who does it belong to? Belongs to a picture director, a guy named Sullivan. Oh. You never heard of him? No. He's made quite a few pictures. Ants and Your Plants in 1939. Oh, did he do that? Yeah, did you see it? Yes. Well... Well, did you like it? Not much. Hmm. Some people thought it was pretty good. I don't care for musicals. They hurt my ears. I see. Well, did you, uh, did you like, uh, Hey Hey in the Hayloft? Oh, I was crazy about that. I thought that would just about fit. You remember the scene where the two were in the Hayloft? Perfectly. And she made him close his eyes and count three before kissing her? Yes, yes. <laughs> and then the pig came out and he kissed the pig instead? It's on a very high plane. <laughs> and then he fell through a hole and sneezed at a horse. And the horse sneezed back at him. <laughs> oh, that was a wonderful scene. Of course, it was stupid, but it was wonderful. Who directed that picture? Don't you think with a world in its present condition with death snarling at you from every street corner that people are a little allergic to comedies? No. Perhaps I didn't make myself clear. Say, how come you know a picture director well enough to borrow his car? Well, as a matter of fact, I used to know most of those boys, but naturally I don't like to mention it in a suit like this. As a matter of fact, I used to be a picture director. Why, you poor kid. Don't get emotional. I'll be all right. What kind of pictures did you make? More along educational lines. Well, no wonder. There's nothing like a deep dish movie to drive you out in the open. What are you talking about? Film's the greatest educational medium the world has ever known. You take a picture like Hold Back Tomorrow. You hold it. Did you ever meet Lubitsch? Yes. Gee, I bet he wouldn't even speak to you now, huh? He spoke to me day before yesterday. Oh, isn't that swell? Funny, isn't it? To meet your first picture director on the day you're leaving Hollywood. All washed up. Even a washed-up picture director. Well, don't get sympathetic. I might make a comeback, you know. That's what they all say. The man that had the room ahead of me, he was always going to make a comeback. He was a picture director, too. Then one day he shot himself instead. They had to repaper the room. You would never do anything like that, would you, big boy? Not on your wallpaper. What do you suppose that is? 
Well, whatever it is, there's absolutely nothing they can do. Remember that. What did you say? I said there's absolutely nothing they can do. <laughs> Famous last words as the two end up in jail for stealing John's own car. By the way, the last scene was great because Veronica was proving the point that the studio execs were trying to tell John. People simply want to be entertained with the movie-going experience. Now look, there's a place for all types of films, but if you look, especially today, as I mentioned, at which films win Oscars, they're all the most downtrodden, forgettable films, all because these artsy-fartsy directors think they're making a difference. Well, they are. They're driving people to stay away from the theaters. But I digress again. So John is bailed out when his butlers arrive at the police station to clear up the mess. Veronica stayed in the cell while John and his butlers explained the situation. Both John and Veronica are released, but she believes he's still a penniless tramp. But John decides to come clean and explains what's really going on, and he takes her back to his mansion. Where's the swimming pool? You must have a swimming pool. Right out here. Outside dining room, barbecue. Hmm. Pretty, isn't it? Yeah. And there's a tennis court up there, and grape arbor there, and a grove there. Well, I guess that's about all. What are you looking at me that way for? Hey, you big fathead. What's the big idea? That's for your swimming pools and your tennis courts and your limousines and your barbecues. That's for making fun of a poor girl when he tried to help you, you big faker. Who made fun of you? You did with your stories of being a washed-up director, you big clunk. Oh, I did, did I? <laughs> Breakfast is served, sir. Might have shaved. I need these whiskers for my experiment. Oh, yes, the noble experiment. You don't have to make any cracks. I don't suffer and starve because I like it, you know. Neither does anybody else. I'm sorry. It's all right. I'm sorry I pushed in the water, too. I probably needed it. You certainly did. Did I? I didn't mind you. As a matter of fact, I had kind of a yen for you. You have? Not in that thing. I liked you better as a tramp. Well, I can't help what kind of people you like. It's funny. I suppose I ought to be very happy for you, as if you'd just struck oil or something. Instead of that, I'm sore. Well, don't frown. You're making lines in your face. Taking all the joy out of life. I was all through with this kind of stuff. I mean, I knew I'd never have it, but there was no envy in my heart. I'd found a friend who'd swiped a car to take me home. Now I'm right back where I started. Just an extra girl having breakfast with a director, only I didn't used to have breakfast with him. Maybe that was my trouble. Did they ever ask you to? No. Well, then don't pat yourself on the back. Take me with you. What? On your experiment. I don't want to be sent home. Don't be childish. I'll tell you what I'll do. You can stay here for a couple of weeks like I told you in the owl wagon. When I get back, I'll see what I can do for you. I don't want to start all that stuff again. Take me with you. When you get as far as you're going, we can say goodbye, and I'll go the rest of the way alone. It'll make a nice ending. And we'll finish what we started this morning. That's absolutely out of the question. Please. You don't know anything about anything. You don't know how to get a meal, you don't know how to keep a secret, and you can't even stay out of town. Thanks. I know 50 times as much about trouble as you ever will. Besides, you owe it to me. You sort of belong to me. Well, you're a hobo. I found you. Piffle. Please. I tell you, it's absolutely out of the question. I'll throw you in the water. You 
take my mind off my work. Oh, ho, ho, the big director that has all the girls padding for him. I tell you, I'll I'm... follow you. I'll tell everybody who you are, like a kid's sister. You follow me. Yes, I'll follow you, and I'll holler. This guy is a phony, ladies and gentlemen. This is Sullivan, the big director from Hollywood, a bonus balonus, a faker, a heel. If I may join in the controversy, sir, I think the young lady's suggestion an excellent one. Well, you may not join in the controversy, Mr. Burroughs. I will, I will, I will. I'm going with you. You'll do nothing of the kind. You go down the street. Would you get me some tramp clothes, Mr. Burroughs? Certainly, miss, certainly. Go down the station and get me a ticket to... Where do you live? I won't tell you. I won't be sent home on the rat rock. You stop that. Uh, stop that. Stop that. Grab her feet. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Set me. Set me. Now, 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 miss. Now, let miss. Let me. Let me. I won't be sent home. Stop it. Please. Miss. Now. Oh, my. Now. Stop it. By the way, this pool scene is a perfect example of the iconic and trend-setting Veronica Lake hairstyle of the era, which frankly has never gone out of style since she perfected it. This is where her hair is long and flowing, parted to over one side of her face, and if you've seen it, you'll understand. Nobody was really wearing their hair like this until she perfected it. There's a really funny scene where the two butlers call up different train stations asking if the train allows tramps to hop on their freight trains, like it's an official sort of deal they have. <laughs> Veronica is now dressed up to look like a young man traveling with John, and they are dropped off near a group of tramps waiting to flag their next freighter. These scenes were likely shot while Lake was pregnant. The two hilariously end up jumping into a train cart, though it's a comedy of errors, while a few hardened tramps watch in amazement about how uncoordinated and amateurish they are. John, who's not very street savvy, believes he can simply strike up a conversation with strangers. For example, how do they feel about the current labor situation? <laughs> and annoyed, the two grizzled tramps leave the car for another. After a night of hay fever, the two end up jumping off the train in Las Vegas. They stop at a tiny diner, but John soon realizes that the dime he initially brought is no longer in his pocket. The diner owner is kind enough to give them both donuts and coffee and says he's not going to get rich anytime soon. So both John and Veronica are very grateful from the diner owner's kindness. John realizes that the tour bus from the studio is actually parked behind the diner. So John tells the execs to give the diner owner $100 for his kindness. However, John has come down with a fever and is instructed by the studio doctor to rest for three days on the bus. How bad? Hello. Feel better? No, I'm sore. Nothing the matter with me but a little fever. Even if I did get sick, they could have sent me to some free hospital or something, wherever they sent you. Would have been very interesting. They give you a nice free burial, too, in Potter's Field. Free burial. Why does everybody exaggerate everything so much? I've got a little cold in my head. You take a dose of salt, there you are. It's because you're a very valuable man. Bourgeois. You make very lovely pictures. Boy. What do you do? It's a funny thing how everything keeps shoving me back to Hollywood or Beverly Hills. <coughs> Or this monstrosity we're riding in, almost like, like, gravity. As if some force were saying, get back where you belong. You don't belong out here in real life, you phony you. You're a little feverish. Maybe there's a universal law that says, stay put. As you are, so shall you remain. Maybe that's why traps are always in trouble. They don't vote. They don't pay taxes. They violate the law of nature. You look very pretty in that outfit. Maybe that's why they don't want trailer colonies. Or am I getting a bit profound? You're getting a bit hot. <sighs> Man, it's very cool. But nothing is going to stop me. I'm going to find out how it feels to be in trouble. Without friends, without credit, without checkbook, without name. Alone. And I'll go with you. How could I be alone if you're with me? After a few days, John recovers and he's back on the road with Veronica. 
They sleep at homeless camps and they try to find shelter. Usually there are churches, soup kitchens, and community showers whenever they can. John has his shoes stolen after sleeping one night in a shelter. He and Veronica take odd jobs like wearing a sign for local businesses in town. Even though the experience is incredibly bleak, John and Veronica become very close and even fonder of one another. Finally, after another night of not being able to find any food, John decides he's had enough of the experiment and he wants to return to his regular life. However, John wants to repay his gratitude to the various homeless people that helped him on his journey and is going to hand out $1,005 bills to as many needy people in the camps as he can for one final night. And then there's Veronica, who is now hopelessly in love with John and wants to stay with him. However, John has to inform Veronica that he's actually married, but, you know, they're separated. He hates his wife, whom he married in the first place, as a way to save on his income tax. That turned out to be incredibly stupid because his income taxes end up being higher by filing jointly, and then his wife cheated on him with the business manager that recommended the marriage in the first place. John has been trying to get a divorce, but the wife won't go for it since why should she get rid of the golden goose? Dejected, Veronica decides to fly back to her parents' house in the Midwest. That night, John hands out the money to as many homeless people as possible. All the needy are stunned and grateful for the gesture, but there's always one bad apple that ruins everything. One guy noticing what John is doing decides to follow John, thinking that he can rob him. When John is alone, the man knocks out John, steals the rest of the cash, and then leaves John in the train car. But there is some karma because the bumbling idiot, thief, runs across the train yard and trips on one of the tracks, and then the cash flies all over. While he's trying to retrieve all of the money strewn all over the ground, he's killed by the oncoming train, which runs him over. The next morning, Veronica and the publicity folks are waiting at John's house and are worried he never came home, and they put out the word that he's missing, or worse. They get a call from the morgue saying that a body was found, but they can't identify it since it's so badly mangled. Veronica says to check out the soles of the shoes, as John put his ID card in them. The person from the morgue confirms that the ID says John L. Sullivan. We then see the newspaper headlines covering the strange death of a Hollywood director. Okay, there's about 25 minutes left, and there's plenty of unexpected plot to cover, and I don't want to spoil the outcome. In many ways, this film is just as relevant today than ever. It has often been touted as one of the best films of the 1940s, and as I stated in the Lady Eve episode, Preston Sturgis was one of the most creative and gifted writer-directors in film history, much like John Hughes. So do yourself a favor and not only check out this film, but all of Sturgis's films. All right, some fun facts. So obviously the Coen brothers were fans of Preston Sturgis because they famously took the title of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? from this film and made their own classic. And actually, Preston Sturgis used the title of the famous novel from 1726, Gulliver's Travels, as inspiration for his own work of Sullivan's Travels. Barbara Stanwyck and Frances Farmer were considered for the female lead, which ultimately went to Veronica Lake. This was the only film that Joel McRae appeared in with Veronica Lake, and reportedly he did not get along with her. He even turned down a lead in the movie I Married a Witch instead of working with her again. But it shows what good acting can do because you would never guess by watching them together in Sullivan's Travels. Paramount purchased Preston Surge's script for this movie for $6,000 which would be the equivalent of $105,000 today. All right, we have a special guest, and of course it's Samantha, who loves her classic movies, and she's never actually seen this classic, so we get a fresh take from her about how she feels about this film. And I'll be back next week to talk about yet another random movie in my DVD collection. Okay, we're back with Samantha. Welcome back. Hi. 
So for this episode, we're going to talk about Sullivan's Travels. And before we get into it, had you actually seen uh, the film before? No, this is another one I have never seen. Yeah, I've never even heard of it before. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, so yeah. we're on a kind of a press and surges kick, or I am. And uh, many people say this is like his his finest film. Uh, and so we'll just get right into it. How did you feel about this film? And uh, did it did it match those lofty expectations? I really liked it. It was cute, I think. Well, it was cute and then also kind of poignant, maybe. Yeah. That was a word to describe it. Um, Yeah, it was a cute comedy. And then you could tell it tried to go a little bit deeper and um, touch on some other themes. And I think it was a bit of a, not an analysis, but I think it was toying with like the whole film industry a bit too. So a lot of different kind of components thrown in, but it, it worked. Well, what's funny is it's still in the, this is 1941, so it's still the early years of cinema. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's just as poignant now, I think, than ever, because you have all these Hollywood elites that kind of live in a bubble and uh, and think that they need to live a certain way to make a certain film instead of, uh, uh, you know, having their own, Yeah, they need their own, they need to experience it to actually write about yeah. it or, or film of it. So that, I think that was an interesting take at the time, because again, yeah. I don't think there had been a story like this at, at that point. Yeah, and I think it was interesting, too, how this is something that even came up then about Mm -hmm. how, you know, this is entertainment. Like, why do we need to keep creating dramas when the majority of people don't really want to watch a dark movie? They want something to kind of distract themselves and, you know, lighten up their day. And I thought that was a good, good um, moral to the story. Absolutely. And you got to remember at the time, it's still somewhat in the depression. We're in World War II, almost in World War II at this point. And uh, talk about a stressful. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the knocks on Hollywood, especially, you know, after the Oscars, a lot of the films are just downers. And what happened Mm -hmm. to just making a a fun film with the exception of like superhero films. I think those have been done to death at this point. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, people wanted to go to the movies to be entertained. I think he had to relearn that. Mm hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it was great how they kind of tied it together from, yeah, the beginning through the different kind of phases he went through on his little travels Mm -hmm. and, you know, meeting the different types of people. And he thought he was kind of throwing himself into the experience for one thing, but he ended up kind of learning something else. So that's that's an earnest point. So since you hadn't seen it and you didn't know what was going to happen, did you see some of the twists that that happened that were that actually happened in the film? No, not at all. Not at all. I thought he was going to, you know, put on his like um little, you know, outfit and pretend to be a hobo if that's mm-hmm. the appropriate word to use, but I thought I you know, he was going to do that and then ride the rails and realize, oh, I don't know if this is truly going to be the thing. Um, and I thought it was going to kind of like end with the little love story, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, I did not see the the, the crime angle um, toward the end. I don't want to spoiler spoil anything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there was a total twist and um, a wrong identity <laughs> spun in there. So yeah, that totally surprised me. But I like how it, it wrapped up. Oh, so how did you feel about the the main characters and um, in particular Veronica Lake? Because they they, um, 
they did not get along on uh, on set and they didn't make them another movie together after oh, this. really yeah so even though they did have great chemistry on the screen which i guess is a testament to their acting skills um they didn't get along so how did you feel about veronica lake yeah they did have pretty good chemistry and i liked her um i couldn't really figure out where they were going with her character at first mm-hmm. um i was you know wondering like is she What's she getting out of this? Um, you know, really, why is she going with this guy and all that? Um, but I thought her character was fun and playful, and the their bickering, or I don't, yeah, their 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 relationship was a little weird. Like I don't know, it was kind of flirty, but then also she kind of felt like his kid at sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. So it was a bit odd. Maybe it's. It was just because she was so much shorter than him. Yeah, she was super uh, tiny. I think she was barely five feet tall. So yeah, and then when they were dressed up and everything as um, in their hobo costume, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was it was interesting. And then I thought she was a good addition to the story. I like her. So <laughs> now, how'd you feel about uh, about Joel McRae? Good. Yeah, I thought his his portrayal was pretty authentic. I thought he was cast well in that type of role. He couldn't pull off the homeless thing really. No. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the point, right? He was supposed to look like a, you know, well-off guy and, you know, in the world of film. So Mm -hmm. I thought, yeah, he, yeah, he, he was cast well. And I wouldn't say he was really, it was really that comical of a role. Exactly. More, you know, the things that happened around him were kind of funny, but he played a good, I think, kind of straight, straight, straight character. So that brings up a good point. Would there have been a different actor you would have put in his in his place? Like, let's say Gregory Peck or a, a Gary Cooper or someone oh, like that. I don't. Th- I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think he f- he really fit. I think what the the point they were trying to get across. So. Mm-hmm. I think he was a good mix of the different traits. Yeah, no, I was fine with the casting. I thought the casting worked. Yeah, I thought, yeah. I think the, I didn't really believe his act, I think, of his plan. Mm-hmm. Of, but that, I think that was pretty much the point, though. <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to be ridiculous. And yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's very screwball in some ways. And mm-hmm. then kind of brings it. That's why this film is kind of unique, because it does have that yeah. really fun, outrageous point. But it does have a kind of a moral to the story, too, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and I think that shift is what it did kind of, it did surprise me, um, the shift in that tone. And then I think it benefited from not having a super comedic, super comedic leads in a way, because right. at the beginning, it's kind of a screwball, like, especially that that scene in the beginning where he, as when he leaves and he hitches a ride with that kid and yeah. his little, like, go-kart thing. And then his little posse follows on a bus and it was just kind of an outrageous scene. And that was super funny. And then there's like bits of that sprinkled throughout the movie. Yeah. It kind of turned a little more serious. And then you get the side plots of kind of, there were quite a few like kind of montage sequences mm-hmm. too, with like, you know, here are the poor people and here are the, uh, here's what they're doing. Um, to help and all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, it was a very interesting combination. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay, so 
watching it, was there anything you would have changed? Were there any plot points you would have gone in a different um, different way? Or were you just happy with the, the ride that it took you on? Yeah, I think it's unique. I, you, you hinted on that already. So I... I think maybe some viewers would have been like, eh, parts of this don't really fit with parts of this. But mm-hmm. after watching the whole thing, it was a unique, it wasn't really a unique experience. And I think it shows that time period in a way. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, lots of different perspectives of Hollywood and society and, the criminal justice system also in a way kind of the definitely you know the highs and lows of society at the time and I think the different tones um kind of work together to show those things and yeah we still got kind of a cute ending where everything worked out and I was happy with it (laughs) well that's good yeah and and it's a type of film that (laughs) it kind it, it fit its um it's kind of its point. It's an entertaining film. So you weren't mm-hmm. going into it depressed, even though it kind of had its moments where you weren't sure. Yeah. Yeah. It made you think a bit, but you still, there were definitely laughs and all that kind of stuff. So kind of related, but eh, not, not movie related, but uh, obviously the Coen brothers were fans of Oh brother, where art thou? <laughs> so, uh, cause they made the, did you ever actually see their, their film? Oh brother, where art thou? Oh gosh, not for I, a long time ago. A okay. long time ago, because it was such a big thing when it came out. Yeah. So it's that similar time period, and even uh-huh. it, it has nothing to do with Sullivan's Travels, but I, I mean, it's based on that same. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah it's you can comparing the two, you can see where um, Sullivan he was trying to find that that life that they have in that in, you know in the movie that was made rec- more recently. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, that's a good, good comparison. Yeah. And I think the Coen brothers like to go back and, and obviously have a, a fondness for classic Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Drew totally. Grant. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Kind of that kind of dark, sly humor mm-hmm. thrown in there. So, well, I think I've made you a fan of Preston Sturgis because we've done yeah. a few of his films. And so this is good. Yeah. Two. I think we've had two hits. <laughs> yeah. So I think we did. We did. We've done this one. We've done, um, the lady eve yeah yeah the lady eve that was and one. i don't know if we've done the palm beach story yet but we uh, we will eventually <laughs> so that's another really good <laughs> one. so again thank you samantha yeah sure if you are ever in the san francisco bay area and still love collecting or renting dvds or vhs tapes come check out captain video and san mateo at 2837 south el camino real captain video is open six days a week and closed on Wednesday, and one of the last traditional video stores still running in the United States. New movies you can rent for $2.99 a day. Old movies you can rent for $2.99 for five days. And if renting isn't your thing, you can also purchase anything you find in the store. Be sure to tell Ira that you heard about Captain Video from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. Happy renting and happy collecting at Captain, Captain Video. 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 Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.